0: Jason Woods here and this is the Little Big Med Podcast where we're talking little patients but big medicine. I've got an absolute treat for you today. I have a pair of guests, Corey Chupitazi and Pradeep Kaman, who are pediatric sedation So I'm gonna have them introduce themselves with their impressive titles in just a second. But by way of preparation for this discussion, they are co-authors on a paper that looked at sedation trends in pediatrics over a little bit more than a decade. And what we wanted them to come on today to talk about was one, just an overview of pediatric sedation. We talked a little bit about meds and, and technique and safety profile. And then what is changing as far as Who is doing it? And where are pediatric sedations being done? Now, I tend to focus much of this podcast on the emergency room because that's where I work and that's where most of my experience is, but the majority of this paper is not done in the emergency room because an awful lot of pediatric sedations occur for things like radiology or bone marrows, and a lot of those are not being done by pediatric emergency medicine docs. But the data, I think, is still really compelling. So with that said, I'm going to get out of the way and let Corey and Pradeep introduce themselves.
1: Thank you, Jason, for the opportunity to speak today. I'm Corey Chupitazzi. I'm an associate professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine, Texas Children's Hospital, and I'm our associate chief of research. I'm also the sedation oversight committee co-chair for the hospital.
2: Hi, uh, Jason and Corey. Uh, My name is Pradeep Kumar. I'm an associate professor at Emory School of Medicine in Atlanta. I'm also the sedation director at uh, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta at Eggleston campus. I am the chair of the membership committee for the Society of Pediatric Sedation and the president elect.
0: And, you know, I do want to mention before we we jump in a little bit further that we are going to be discussing sedation medications today, which are very commonly used in children. But like many things we do in pediatric, they are not specifically FDA approved for children for this indication. So you should know that going in. We are here today because there was an article published earlier this year, earlier in 2020, in pediatrics examining the trends in pediatric sedation from 2007 to 2018. And my two guests today are two of the authors on that paper and experts in what has been happening in the world of pediatric sedation. So part of what is driving this is that there's been an increase overall in pediatric procedural sedations done outside of the OR routinely by non-anesthesiologists. And, and I wanted to, to ask my guest what was changing and, and what was increasing, what was decreasing, and, and how did the safety look? So before we get to results, what is procedural sedation? Do we have a, a formal definition for it? and or, or what was the definition that you used as we get into this paper?
1: Well, there is no universal definition as accepted by all bodies, but but the American College of Emergency Physicians defines procedural sedation as the technique of administering sedatives and dissociative agents with or without analgesics to induce a state that allows the patient to tolerate unpleasant procedures while maintaining cardiorespiratory function. So procedural sedation and analgesia, PSA, is intended to result in the depressed level of consciousness that allows the patient to maintain oxygenation and that airway control independently. Um, and I think it's really important to note that it's a continuum. So from minimal to moderate to deep sedation and then general anesthesia, there's no hard stop in between each of those. And we really do try to get away from calling moderate sedation conscious sedation, because it's, it's not helpful in that definition that having awareness and mental faci- faculties, which is the definition of conscious, really, you know, doesn't fit with the goal of what we're trying to do, especially from an ED standpoint when we're doing painful procedures primarily.
0: Yeah, that term also seems to be really confusing to patients and parents when you say conscious sedation and they're like, I thought you told me that I would not be awake for this, but you're using the word conscious. So I I try to stay away from it as well. I know that every, I don't know, two, three years, however often it is that I have to get recredentialed by my hospital to do procedural sedations, the test is almost entirely about identifying the level of sedation. How important is that in this work? And is it primarily useful from a a research definition to guide how you're going to group the data? Is it meaningful in what agents you choose? Sort of. Why do we care to really delineate mild, moderate, and deep?
1: Right, right, Jason. So I think in sticking with those definitions, it is a little bit semantics to say exactly what level. Are they responsive to vigorous touch? Are they responsive to light Tactile stimulation. A lot of the times we don't want to be stimulating them to find out exactly what level they're at. And we know that one drug, one dose, And even the same patient doesn't have the same effect. So if they miss their nap, if they forgot their lovey, those types of things, you know, you might not get that same level of sedation. And so when we're tasked with looking at from a hospital standpoint and a regulatory standpoint, that's where I'm pushed for my institution to name drugs and doses by classes of levels of sedation. However, um, I think it is important to say that we're really targeting, you know, that's your target and you've got to be ready to rescue from a level deeper than intended.
2: Got to add to that is sedation is basically a continuum. So you cannot say a kid is mildly sedated because even if you give him a simple drug, that kid may stop breathing on you. And what's more important is that people know how to rescue the airway. So uh, like Corey said, it's basically semantics. Uh, I want to make it very clear, though, that drug does not define the level of sedation. It's the patient and his responses, and his or her responses do. So that's very important. Uh, And then, you know, if you you can take a drug like ketamine, how do you classify the patient as mild, moderate, or deeply sedated? Because ketamine is a dissociated antidepressant. aesthetic and it, you know it's not classified into this uh, classification of the level of sedation
0: yeah, you actually bring it up. That's part of why I, it, this always made me smile when I had to identify because ketamine seems to buck all of the rules and it's yeah. it's the one I use the most. So <laughs> so for for the purposes of the discussion in, in the paper today, how did you define adverse events? And then we'll break it down further. And how did you define series adverse events?
2: Yeah. So Jason, that's actually an excellent, excellent question. So uh, first of all, there's no national benchmark for what constitutes an adverse event. Okay. So for example, if I give a propofol to a patient, if I push it too fast, there's a very high chance I can make that patient apneic. And say it's a 12, 14 second apnea, and then the, I just hold some CPAP, jaw thrust, and the patient starts breathing again. Is that an adverse event, uh, really? I mean, you know, versus if the patient becomes apneic for a minute, and I have to bag the uh, patient and do a uh, multiple other things, is that an adverse event? Okay, so uh, if it's a short thing that I'm expecting, I can handle really quickly. There's no uh, adverse neurologic outcome to a patient. uh, You know, I wouldn't consider that as an adverse event as opposed to a thing that really needs intervention, skill on part of the provider, and there is danger that the patient could have and, uh, and a neurological uh, ne- bad neurologic outcome that should constitute more of an adverse event. So a small hypo like a little bit of hypoxia that's quickly resolving, some desaturation, a little bit of coughing, I wouldn't take as an adverse event. There have been attempts to kind of do, uh, kind of define this adverse event based on intervention. You know, did was there really an intervention required to, uh, and if the intervention was not provided, this could proceed towards cardiac arrest. So uh, I think Kamala Burt and others in, in previous studies have tried to do a good job on that. So uh, for the purpose of this paper, What we did is we basically went with serious adverse events. And serious adverse events are events that have the potential to cause irreversible neurologic damage. That's number one. And secondly, these are events that are very objective. So even uh, a person around uh, the patient can quickly recognize this. And for example, if a patient has a cardiac arrest and needs CPR, all people in that room can tell you, hey, That is CPR. That is not good. If you don't do that well, patient can have an adverse event. So, so we went with serious adverse events. uh, Things like uh, aspiration. You know, if a patient has a uh, throws up and aspirates, that would be another. A patient having severe airway obstruction, as in a laryngospasm, that was another adverse event because all folks can objectively uh, recognize that as a bad event. And so for the uh, purpose of this paper, I really went with uh, serious adverse events. Uh, The other thing I wanted to tell you is the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium database has uh, uh, a priori defined all these adverse events. So we stuck to that definition uh, so that we were consistent throughout, and most of the PSRC papers uh, have the same uh, definitions used repeatedly. And I will make sure those get listed in the show notes so that everybody can see what we're talking about
0: there. They're very well delineated in the paper. Corey, anything to add on adverse events or serious adverse events? We'll get into airway obstruction and and whether you need to break that out as something separate when we talk about results.
1: We were looking at the risk of pulmonary aspiration when we think about NPO times. And we know that within this database as well, we have less than 0.7 for 10,000 sedations with adverse events. And when we looked at that specifically in a separate paper from the PSRC data. We saw that all the 10 cases of pulmonary aspiration did occur in patients that were fasted longer than six hours.
0: Ah, I would love to get into this right now. So, Corey, are you suggesting to me that, that, that this data seems to indicate that for procedural sedation, the NPO time is perhaps not the golden mandate that it has historically been listed as, and, and that in that data set, the aspirations occurred in, in patients who had fasted a fairly long amount of time.
1: Exactly, and so that's why I think looking at the recent studies by Bot, looking across the PERK sites and their um, prospective study looking at fasting, in combination with the Green study published in the British Journal of Anesthesia, looking at that lit review of that pulmonary aspiration, you You know, there is good data to say that fasting, especially in the brief EM procedures with low ASA status, grade one or two, and then using ketamine as a primary drug, that um, there, there should not be fasting guidelines.
0: I don't think this will come as a surprise to many of the adult colleagues because I think this data had been existing in, in their age ranges a little bit earlier, but this does support my general feeling that as long as they're not eating as I go to give them their sedation drug, they have been NPO long enough. Yeah. And even we got <laughs> our
1: anesthesiologist to change to one hours for clear. So uh, um, that's incredible. I think- I think definitely the um you know, with nitrous oxide especially, the longer they're fasted, the um, more risk there is of vomiting. So actually drinking a little bit before some of those procedures actually can be helpful.
0: Let's jump into the meat of the discussion. And, and what did your paper show, this analysis of, of the trends of sedation? And we can jump through this maybe one piece at a time. So so uh, do we have changes in who is performing these procedural sedations?
2: If you look at uh, figure one uh, of this uh, paper, what it kind of shows is that uh, the pediatric intensivists do uh, the majority of sedation, and that trend has really not changed. We uh, are very closely followed by the pediatric emergency medication, medicine in docs and anesthesiologists what has what was really interesting is what we have found compared from 2007 to now is there has been a really almost like an exponential increase in pediatric hospitalists providing sedation. The other interesting take from the whole provider's, uh, provider trends in sedation, there has been a decrease in what we call as, in quotations, others that were providing sedation. And this includes uh, radiologists, uh, nurses, GI doctors, and what that really tells me is a lot of institutions are going towards teams of uh, sedationists previous practice of uh, a GI doc giving a little sedative to do endoscopy, those things are going away. And uh, sedation is uh, more uh, kind of safely and efficiently performed by sedation teams that are well-trained to do this sedation.
0: What about success rates? Are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Are we we changing the patient populations we're picking and and altering how good we are at doing sedations?
2: The overall success rate is close to 99%. And uh, what What that basically uh, highlights is uh, the the members of the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium are uh, highly trained and a very organized group, and I want to caution folks that such uh, results may not be mimicked by folks who are not within the PSRC. So, the PSRC uh, institutions voluntarily put this data. They are very organized. Uh, they have, uh, they adhere to a certain standard of training within each institution. And so, if someone tries to mimic this in, you know, say a community hospital without a lot of training, they may not get the same success rate and they may not have the same low adverse event rate so i want to caution folks about this so that is where you know the success rate is really really high the other thing is we choose our patients very carefully which is uh, the process of pre screening because not every patient is a sedation candidate and some patients will have to be referred to anesthesia and i don't think uh, and i don't personally take that as a sign of weakness because you know for example if i have a kid who has a mediastinal mass I am not going to touch that patient. And even anesthesiologists would be scared to touch that patient, and they would have different tools in their toolbox to how to do that patient. So I'm very careful at the way I choose a patient, and so are all PSRC institutions, and that is why our uh, uh, outcomes are so good.
0: Let's jump into medications then. Have there been trends in which medications are being used, either seeming to become less in favor or increasing in percentages?
2: Yeah, uh, so Jason, what we found as far as medications go is there has been a, a significant decrease in the use of chloral hydrate, and a part of it is because chloral hydrate went off formulary uh, since 2012. Uh, There may be a couple institutions in the country that kind of still uh, can compound and formulate their own chloral hydrate and it's still being used. Uh, Then we also found that there was a decrease in the use of uh, pentobarbital uh, for sedation. And I think the obvious reason for that is not only the adverse events, but you you sedate someone for an MRI with pentobarbital kid can remain sedated for a long time. And now we have much better drugs. I mean, for example, propofol, you know, once the MRI is done and you turn off propofol, the kid is likely going to wake up pretty quickly and and have a very restful uh, awakening you know, like with less emergence and throwing up as compared to pentobarb. And this is uh, really important in high volume sedation practices because they want quick recovery so they can discharge the patient and take the next patient in. The other trend that we saw was an increasing use of uh, dexmedetomidine, both intranasal and intravenous. And I think that is the drug that is actually replacing chloral hydrate, especially for short imaging procedures and other procedures like, uh, uh, you know, ABRs, uh, that can be done without a lot of uh, other medications needed for pa- pain control. Uh, I think dexmedetomidine is the much more uh, friendlier drug. It can be given through various routes, and it works pretty fast.
0: Pradeep, we, we started to jump in on this, and this was my question back to you, because I'm looking at the paper and the study, and I really expected to see just this massive increase in ketamine use as a percentage of sedations. I mean, it's a little bit of a joke in the EM world right now that it's it's the emergency room's favorite medication. Yeah. And uh, that might be true. I love it as a medicine. Yeah. Um, but it did not show a, a drastic increase. And I'm wondering how you explain that. Is uh, is it just that like all of the the people who do podcasts really love it and the rest of the world doesn't? Or, or what are we seeing here? Yeah.
2: So I think, uh, Jason, there are multiple reasons for that. Uh, and for and I, and just to tell you that i work in the icu and a lot of painful procedures we do in the ICU, I love ketamine, and it's my first go-to drug, uh, and I even use it as a single agent most of the time. So what has happened within the PSRC is you have to remember uh, these are outpatient, mostly outpatient sedation, so I should say sedations that happen outside the operating room, and most of them are actually imaging procedures, and for imaging procedures, what we really need is a patient cooperation, uh, immobility on part of the patient, and uh, amnesia on part of the patient. So uh, when I go and do an MRI, it is very easy for me to actually use propofol, which meets all those uh, the conditions uh, that I need the patient to have, or dexmedetomidine for short imaging procedures. Uh, I don't use ketamine in the, because there's no pain involved. Uh, and the other thing with ketamine is you can be uh, sedated. You can have that dissociated sedation state, but you can still move, which is not the best thing for radiology procedure where they require immobility. Uh, Having said that, for painful procedures, ketamine is still being used within the PSRC. And uh, we have previously published papers on ketamine and uh, the combination of ketamine and propofol uh, in pediatric critical care medicine using data from uh, PSRC. The other reason I think uh, uh, the, the ketamine is not very widely used is uh, the EM docs do not make a huge, uh, uh, you know, like a subset of all providers providing sedation within the PSRC. Uh, There is kind of a, you know, it's almost like 70% of us uh, providing sedation belong to uh, either uh, pediatric intensive care or others as opposed to EM and anesthesia. And I think it's just the way the data is reported. That's why you see lower numbers with ketamine. Uh, But I can tell you that all of us like ketamine a lot, but for what we have seen in this paper, we were mostly pro, uh, like propofol was kind of showing up a lot.
0: You are suggesting to me that the ER is not the most important component of this database, and I'm not
2: sure how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah. No, that was not my intention. Corey, go ahead. I think Corey is like the ketamine queen. She uses ketamine much more than I do.
1: Whatever route you look at for looking at your adverse events and thinking about your practice and how you can improve and make it better for the patient and for their family at the end of the day is, is really important. And so whether it's joining the PSRC and um, getting those quality reports or using your internal um, data to look at that, um, your adverse reports and, and really getting into the data of your sedation and find out how you're doing and what what is your satisfaction with the routes that folks are choosing. And I think, I think those are really the, um, the important things to think about in light of this study as well.
0: I would love to chat with you guys about every detail of how you do procedural sedations. And I'm actually, I'm hoping to convince you to come back and we can do an entire discussion just about dexmedetomidine because it it is newly available in my institution in the emergency room and I have had great success with it. So, um, but you know, that's, that's just an anecdotal report. So I guess I'm, we're heading towards the wrap up. What else do we need to talk about? What other takeaways do you want people looking at this article to, to know, uh, they have done
2: Yeah, I think, uh, Jason, what we have shown in this paper are basically the trends in sedation. I think the big takeaways are pediatric hospitalists are doing more and more of the sedations outside the operating room. Uh, They are a young, newer specialty within pediatrics. So what is required for their training uh, and how they're exposed to sedation during the training uh, needs to be addressed. The other thing I want to tell you is uh, folks really need to move away from from drugs that really kind of may or may not work or may provide prolonged uh, sedation, such as chloral hydrate, uh, pentobarb. uh, What's also very important is I, I mentioned that our success rate is pretty high, but that is because of the organizational um, and, uh, and kind of, you know, like the, it's basically the commitment of the PSRC organizations to a certain level of a certain standard and training. So I want to caution the, uh, the other folks that before you say, hey, I can do this in my community, small uh, setting, they really need to know, uh, you know, that this may not be replicable Uh, in in those arenas. Uh, The other thing is in the future, I think what we need to do is really look at the cost effectiveness and benefits of having A sedation program at large institutions. While anesthesiologists are the experts, they are better uh, utilized to do do bigger surgeries in the operating room than be pulled out of the operating room to sedate for a 10-minute lumbar puncture or a 15-minute bone marrow, which is very well done by folks within emergency department, uh, critical care, anesthesia, and hospitalists who have the training and and, and the comp to manage Airway.
1: Yeah, and pretty. i just highlight that the database is... is comprised of a lot of quaternary institutions. And so thinking about your rescue mechanism and your response team for the sedation procedures. So if you're choosing to sedate these higher risk patients and populations, just making sure that your rescue plan and code response and everything in, in involved is um, well delineated because I think that is another thing that is, is a little bit different than, from the general community hospital um, ED compared to this data set.
0: A massive thank you to Corey and Pradeep for their time today. Just a couple of review points. One, I think in most of our clinical practices, some of the drugs that have a little bit less safe profiles like chloral hydrate are no longer available. And things like pentobarb are less and less used as things like dexmedetomidate become increasingly available with great safety profiles and predictable pharmacodynamics and kinetics. So Take a look at this paper. There's a lot more in there than we could dig into. I wish we had more time to like just jump into each of their techniques and how they deal with sedation as a whole. Uh, I'm going to hopefully have them back for that. So check out the show notes. There'll be a lot more information in there. As always, you can find me, on Twitter at Jay Woods MD or via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. You can find the rest of the Little Big Med podcast through the website, www.littlebigmed.com, or through your favorite podcasting platform. If you have some time, head on over wherever you're listening to this and leave a review. It really does help other people find the show. Thanks for your time.